Hi, my name is David. The Old Testament is reading is found in Isaiah 53, 3 to 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him all the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Carmen. The New Testament reading is found in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Eric. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 5, 24 through 29. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing. Father in heaven. We thank you for the revelation we have through your word. Lord Jesus, that you came crushed and bearing our iniquities upon your body. Yet, Lord, you reach down. And Holy Spirit, you bring that same life of Jesus into us today. For that, Lord God, we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Pastor Glenn. It's always a delight to speak at my home church, and, and I love the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's probably my favorite portion of Scripture. Has anybody here ever been doing something really important, and suddenly you're interrupted, even rudely, and the interruption, as it turns out, is even something more dramatic or more important than the thing 
that you were doing at the beginning. Sadly, often when that happens, it's something tragic. Perhaps it's being interrupted to find out news of an accident or even a a death. I remember some years back, I was in Morogoro, a city in Tanzania in East Africa, and it was a Tuesday afternoon. We had about 400 pastors. We were teaching and training, and I had been teaching all day on the kingdom of God. And I was up on the platform. It was about 4.45 in the afternoon. I remember it very well. That was East Africa time. That would have been about 6.45 a.m. in New York, 8.45 here. And the day was Tuesday, September 11, 2001. And as I was beginning to kind of close in the message, and there was a real wonderful, sweet presence of the Lord in that place and ready to kind of transition to a ministry time, suddenly my South African colleague just came right up on the stage, standing right next to me at a table not unlike this, and grabbed me aside. And I couldn't even imagine, why are you interrupting me right at the apex of of my message? And he pulled me aside and he said, quick, leave, go back to where, where we were staying. It was like it was a, a kind of a college and there were dorms and there was a reception area with a small television. He said, go back there. He said, your country is under attack. And I thought, what are you talking? He said, don't just, I'll close the meeting. Just get, you have to go. And, and so I, I gathered my things, put them in a bag, and I kind of walked quickly wondering, what is he even talking about? And I came into this little lobby. There were a bunch of African folks already there staring at it. They had CNN International tuned in. And about a minute after I arrived, probably at the same time as all of you, I watched the first tower dissolve into dust. And of course, all of our lives changed. I spent that week then trying to continue teaching and yet in between the breaks trying to reach Linda, trying to reach a dear friend of mine who lived in lower Manhattan who was going to meet me in New York on my way back, wondering if he was even alive. As it turns out, I was allowed to leave that Sunday night. The flight I actually had a ticket for was the first flight allowed to leave the uh, the continent of Africa to come to the United States and only the second international flight allowed back into the U.S. And amazingly, we actually flew into JFK. We had to take, uh, my friend met me there. We had to take ground transportation to get across town over to LaGuardia where I began my crisscross around the country to finally get home. While driving, I saw the plumes of smoke coming up from ground zero. And, And I always remember that interruption because it was so dramatic. Well, in Mark chapter 5, we have, while not on a grand scale, we have this radical interruption that happens to Jesus, and it's something that happens rather frequently. You see, in Mark 5, we have an example of what we call a Markin sandwich. Nine times in his gospel, in this short little gospel, Mark tells a story, and right as he's telling the one story, That story is interrupted, even rudely, and then another thing happens, and then eventually the first story comes back and closes. We call it an ABA structure, because that interruption becomes the interpretive key for all of the combined stories. And Mark does this, we suspect, in rearranging some of the... um, 
sequence of events because he's trying to get the reader's attention. Glenn has mentioned a number of times that the Gospel of Mark, being the shortest of the Gospels and probably the first to be written, is written in some ways, some scholars believe, like a series of little plays with a, with a, a scene that opens up, with an act followed by another act. Certainly the Mark and Sandwiches seem to underscore that. And so let's look at it. You see, the gospel reading today put the middle interruption right in front of us. But there's another story that was happening before and happens afterward that was just as serious, just as radical. And so let's turn in Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible in some form, I'm going to read verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. There then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And at this point is where our gospel reading tells us how Jesus was on his way and suddenly this woman crushes through the crowd and reaches out and touches his garment. And it tells us about this woman that she had, it just says in the King James, an issue of blood. Uh, Other translations are are similarly vague, probably probably simply because it was a ceremonially unclean sort of thing. The woman was having some kind of, of physiological female problems that was hemorrhaging, there was bleeding, it was very serious, nothing would stop it. And she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, just the, the hem of his garment. And he turns around and says, who touched me? And his disciples are saying, what are you saying, Lord? Everyone is touching you. And so... This all plays out, and then we forget almost about this dear man. Have any, how many here are parents? Raise your hand. Many of us here. Whether your children are, are older and grown now as ours are, and we have grandchildren, or your kids are young, I don't think there is any emotion more raw than when your child is really sick. There's just something that, that there's a desperation. There, there's a certain, there's just this sense of hopelessness that comes about when a sick little child uh, is there. Let's go back down now to chapter 5, starting at verse um, 35. And it says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he only allowed Peter and James and John to come with him. And when they got there, it says that there was a great commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all out except for the child's father and mother and his disciples, and they went in. And it says that he took her by the hand, and he said in Aramaic, which would have been the the language that Jesus spoke most commonly 
Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and they strictly charged that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So we have the woman healed radically by the touch of Jesus. And then there's this, this sense of, if you would have just hurried your way and not waited for this woman, you could have touched my daughter. Now, Mark 5 doesn't begin with these two stories. The first half of Mark 5 is an even more dramatic story. And and as Glenn and I spoke about what to cover in Mark 5, it was really kind of a toss-up because both are, are powerful sections. The first half of Mark 5 is this bizarre story about this terribly afflicted Man, he's possessed with demonic strongholds. He's, He's naked. He cuts himself. He's running around like a crazy person living in the cemeteries. No one can, can bind him. I mean, he's being treated like an animal. And we have this radical story of how this man comes to Jesus, falls down. Half of it is him speaking. Half of it are these demonic powers speaking through him. And I think the most powerful verse in the first half of Mark 5 is when after Jesus drives those spirits out, it says, and the man was sitting there fully dressed and in his right mind. Now, Mark chapter 5 has been called throughout the church, church's history the St. Jude chapter of the Bible. You ever heard of St. Jude? There's hospitals, right, by the name of St. Jude. St. Jude was considered the patron saint of lost causes, of hopeless causes. And the reason is actually kind of funny because St. Jude historically, was often confused with Judas, the betrayer. And so people didn't, in in early, more superstitious Catholicism, didn't want to accidentally pray to the wrong Judas. And so they felt sorry for Jude, the good one, and he became known as the saint of hopeless causes, of people that had no hope because they just kind of threw their prayer up, and if Judas, the bad Judas got it, the good Judas got it, oh well, you know, I'll do my best. Throw it up and see if anybody catches. Well, we don't believe that it's limited to a saint. We rather believe that Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. And what I want us to think about as we look through this passage and we unpack it a little bit is why did Mark interrupt the story with this story about the woman? Why did he do that? Well, there are some things that are in common between these two stories. There's some common elements. In both of these stories, we're looking at women. In one case, it's an older woman. In another case, it's a, it's a young woman. But in both cases, it's women. And you've heard this before, but it is true. For his time and the culture in which he came, Jesus was the greatest liberator of women that the world had ever seen. And the fact that he is reaching out and ministering so tenderly and so dramatically to two women speaks of his love for all of his creation. Secondly, it says they're both called daughter. Just the affection and the, the, the tenderness with which Jesus addresses them. You know, the thing about Jesus 
is that while he is God, he calls us sons and daughters. Christianity is different from so many world religions, even monotheistic religions, religions that just worship one God, because while most religions believe that God is transcendent, that means God is way above us, you know, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways, and while that is absolutely true, the opposite of transcendence is what we call eminence, which means he's right there. And it is in Christ that God is both transcendent and imminent. And so he calls her daughter. He calls both of them daughter. The woman's illness and the girl's age are both 12 years. Now, you have to be careful about numerology in the Bible because it gets crazy really quick. Okay, spoiler alert, there is no Bible code. I'm sorry, there isn't, okay? So if you, gave the, if you bought those books, I wouldn't even give them to Goodwill because somebody's going to read them. Just, you know, <laughs> put them in the back shelf behind, you know, your other books. There is no Bible code. But there is meaning to a lot of the numbers that we see in Scripture. And if you think of the number 12, does it ring a bell when you think about the whole of Scripture, Old and New Testament? How many tribes were there of Israel? How many sons did, did Abraham have? Or excuse me, yeah, Abraham have. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, excuse me. Jacob had. 12. And so 12 became symbolic of the people of God, the people of covenant, the government of God, if you will. And then we go to the New Testament. How many disciples did Jesus call? 12. You go to the book of Revelation and you have that really strange verse where it says that around the throne in heaven there will be 12,000 times 12,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses did the math and said 144,000 people will go to heaven. Well, it's actually a little simpler than that. In the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, including the book of Revelation, 1,000 is the largest number. And so what it literally says is 12 times 1,000, or 12 1,000s times 12 1,000s, what we seem and what most scholars believe it's saying in Revelation is the whole number of the people of faith from the Old Covenant and the whole number of people of faith from the New Covenant combined are going to be the whole number of the people populating the new heaven and the new earth. So 12 in our mind here, in looking at Mark chapter 5, to me speaks of God's kingdom. Twelve means God's on the throne and God's in charge. Was the girl actually twelve? Well, I have no reason to say she wasn't. But the fact that she was twelve and the fact that this woman had been bleeding for twelve years spurs Mark on in this Holy Spirit-inspired imagination of his to combine these stories in a way to say, even in the most hopeless situations in life, God is still in charge. In both stories, Jesus is met with rebuke. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Don't bother the teacher anymore. When we're hopeless, there's always those around us who are willing to tell us that God can't and won't do something. We had a miracle in our church. You remember less than a year ago, uh, I, I get teared up thinking about it, uh, with, with Evan and Karen and little baby William. And 
and many of you remember that whole, that whole journey as we were waiting anxiously to find out if, if William was going to die or William was going to live. And how many of you were following that either on, on social media or quite a few of us, yes. Right at the point where we really didn't know how it was going to turn out, Glenn and I were having coffee. You remember that, Glenn? And both Glenn's and my phones buzzed at the same time because we each got a text. And the text was that he had turned the corner and he was going to live. And Glenn and I both started crying. And I said, i got to be honest, Glenn. I'm surprised. He said, i got to be honest. I'm surprised too. It seems like a miracle is happening in our midst. And we were just overwhelmed because you're so used to hearing the rebukes and the naysayers that say it's hopeless. Why bother the teacher anymore? Just make the funeral arrangements. And yet, Jesus in both cases ignores the rebukes and heals. In both stories, Jesus is in contact with ritual uncleanness the bleeding of the woman and the corpse of the young girl. And in a strange twist of of circumstances, he isn't actually violating those Old Testament laws because he heals both of them, making them no longer unclean. So he does fulfill the law. He obeys the law by cleaning the unclean. In both stories, Jesus talks about simple faith. He doesn't say, get your faith all pumped up. He doesn't say, you know, you've got to have great faith. He just accepts the simplicity of their faith. In the woman with the issue of blood, it's faith mixed with a a first century superstition that the, the power of a person would actually radiate into their clothing. Jesus doesn't rebuke that. He doesn't even correct it. He acknowledges her faith at the level that it is, at the place that it is, and warmly welcomes her to himself and touches her and heals that woman. In the case of Jairus' daughter, it was certainly not her faith that raised her up because she was dead. And yet the simple faith of the man, of the father, so desperate, heals. And you know... The amazing thing was that his, his situation goes from bad to worse. Because you see, in the story of Jairus' daughter, Jesus enters into the hopeless situation. It went from desperate to hopeless. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. I pastored for a lot of years, and, I've, and some of you have too. I know there's a number of, of men here that have been pastors for many years, Pastor David and, and several others here. You know what it's like to be called to the bed of someone, and the family's so desperate and so hopeless. I, I, I Just so many different times come into my mind of being there. I remember a woman eight and a half months pregnant with her second child, uh, she and her husband met on the mission field and he had bacterial spinal meningitis and went from healthy to dead in 12 hours. And I remember us clothed in, in the infectious diseases outfits. She could barely walk. She was so pregnant and yet so overcome with grief. And we were at Penrose Hospital and we'd come back and the doctor says, we need to come in because she needs to say goodbye. 
and she collapsed in my arms and said, Pastor, can't you do something? And you feel so hopeless. I prayed with him, prayed for him, I prayed with her, prayed for her, and ultimately, ultimately we said goodbye as he slipped into eternity. And you have those things over and over and over again. You almost think, why try? And yet then, then the baby Williams stories happen. And so, why did Mark interrupt this story with the other story? It says that she touched the hem of his garment and was made whole. I want to take just a few moments, the balance of the time we have, and I want to talk about spirituality, physicality, sacraments, and healing. Now, that's, that's a big list, but I just want to make a couple of points. That's a problem. I can't ever not use big words, I guess. We talk about sacraments a lot, and some of you come in and say, when I came to church, you know, I remember Catholics had sacraments, but we had ordinances. Well, we don't just, we didn't just choose those. By the way, you know the problem I have with the word ordinance? How many of you heard we have two ordinances, baptism and communion? The reason I, is an ordinance is kind of like a rule. We have ordinances that say, you, you know, you can't walk your dog on certain streets, and ordinances say you can't leave your trash cans out. So I think those gifts the Lord gave us in baptism and communion are a little different than a law. Or a rule. The idea of a sacrament, it's so simple. See, because it actually comes back to the Old Testament and our Jewish roots. God created matter. Pastor Glenn has said numerous times that matter matters. And some of you don't understand, what's he mean by that? God created a physical earth, a physical creation, and what did God say every time he created part of it? It is good. And sacraments are just God using his creation for the purposes of extending and giving his grace to his creation. You see, Jesus came physically. The gospels tell us that he came in the flesh and lived among us. He physically was born, physically lived, physically died, physically rose from the dead, and physically ascended into heaven. And so the church now, as he ascends into heaven, physically receive the Holy Spirit. Physically receive those endowments of grace and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We physically have bread and wine that we physically consume and when met with faith, bring the presence and the grace of God. We physically lay hands on the sick. We physically put oil on the head in the name of Jesus. And God uses his physical creation to bring about a means of his grace to people that are hopeless and hurting and desperate. So what does the woman do? The woman reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment and is made whole. I think that's such a wonderful picture of what we need to do when life's circumstances implode upon us and we can't even breathe because of the angst and the desperation and the hopelessness. We need something to physically grab onto. We don't just need someone saying, well, I'll be thinking of you. I'll send good thoughts your way. I'll pray for you. That's when you need the hug. That's when you need the oil. That's when you need the bread and the wine. 
You physically touch the hem of his garment when you come to him in that way. What's interesting is that the earliest record of Christian worship is from one of the early church fathers by the name of Irenaeus, uh, Justin Martyr, excuse me, I'm getting my fathers mixed up, Justin Martyr. And in just about 50 years after the last apostle died, Justin writes about the order of Christian worship. This is long before Constantine came in and some of the, the big changes in the way the church looked and operated, and some might say the Romanization of the church. This is before then. This is 150 A.D., Okay, just a hundred years after Christ uh, has ascended into heaven. And he describes the early church service. And it's not that unlike what we do today. He described, they called it the president of the assembly instead of the pastor. But the pastor would get up, would lead some prayers. They would sing some psalms. He would teach from the scriptures. And then it says he would bless the wine and the bread. And as the people would partake of the communion, the deacons of the church would go up and take some of the consecrated wine and bread and go out into the village to find the members of the church who were too sick to come to church that day and give them communion in their home and pray for healing. That's how the early church did church in 150 AD. Kind of sounds like what we're trying to do, doesn't it? So why did Jesus, or excuse me, why did Mark sandwich this passage in the middle? Because he wants us to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. He wants us in hopelessness and despair to have something physical to hang on to in order that his grace might flow into our lives. I don't know why some people are healed and others are not. But I do know that when Jesus is present with us in those most desperate times, we are better and more whole because of it. Many years ago, Linda and I, our first trip to India was in 93, 1993. And there was a large conference, uh, 20,000 or so people, and we had the privilege of being part of the speaking team, and we were speaking. And, but during one of the days when I was not speaking in the afternoon, uh, one of my connections here, uh, uh, he was actually an Indian uh, man who was a chaplain in the U.S. Army now, and he had asked me as a favor when we were there because he had connected me with these people. He said, could, you, could we make arrangements for you to go to this particular village where my parents are buried? I have not seen their grave since they were buried. And would you just take a photograph of their grave for me? And I said, absolutely, I will. So the arrangements were made, and Linda and I were taken by this one Indian pastor who drove us through this very rural area of the village, and we, and we saw it, and we, we kind of tidied up the graves, and some ladies brought some water, and we cleaned them up and, you know, did what we could, and I took several photographs for him. And as we were driving back, our, our driver, who was a pastor, spoke no English whatsoever, and suddenly pulled into this little village, I mean... Uh, thatched huts and, and, and palm trees everywhere. He just stopped, and, and I don't know if it was his village or where he grew up, or, or I don't, I, we still don't know anything because he spoke no English. But we got out, he told us to get out, we got out, and suddenly it appeared that everybody from the village showed up, probably 75, 100 people. They were all very short, 
you know, and, and I was the white American holy man, you know, presumably. And, and so we're just, Linda and I were just kind of standing there saying, you know, doing the, the queen's wave, you know, hi. And don't know what we're supposed to be. And suddenly, kind of shoved from the group was this precious little girl, maybe 10 or 12 years old. She was terribly deformed and, and had to walk on all fours like an animal. And whereas most, one thing we saw even in their poverty is that most of the young girls with their beautiful, dark, long black hair, the mothers would beautifully braid the hair. This little girl's hair was very poorly cut off, probably so that it wouldn't drag in the dirt. And we realized, as they were all looking at us, they wanted us to heal her. And Linda and I, I remember, I know, honey, you remember this too, we, we dropped to our knees on the dirt and we just began to hug this little girl. Linda began to stroke her hair. We cried out to the Lord. At one point, the little girl got down on the ground. And I remember laying on my side on the dirt to look into her eyes. And I'll, remember, I'll never forget, as I looked into her eyes, it was, it's as if the clearest picture of Jesus I had ever seen was looking back at me. Now, we do not know what happened to this little girl. We don't know if she was healed or not. We prayed every prayer we could pray. We did everything we could do. And we hugged her and loved her and, 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 and showed affection to her. And then we ended up in the back of that car and were driven away. I don't know what happened. But yet I do know what happened. At that moment, we were able to be the hem of his garment. At that moment, we were able to be something physical that brought the grace and the love of Jesus, the hope of the hopeless, to that little girl. And something I know had to happen. And I still pray to this day that there was some kind of healing and restoration and grace that came into her life. 